Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDNY podcast. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. You can listen to all the past episodes by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, a fire in 1835 destroys nearly 700 buildings in New York City. In 1873, the FDNY organizes what might be their most unusual unit. And in 1938, Clarence Eldridge Meek is sworn in as an honorary captain and librarian of the FDNY. On December 14, 1835, New York's volunteer firefighters combated two working fires that destroyed a total of 14 buildings. But that was nothing compared to what they confronted two nights later. Around 9 p.m. on December 16, a fire broke out at 35 Merchant Street. That street no longer exists, but was where Beaver Street is today. The weather was brutal, continuing a bout of sub-zero temperatures. Add to that, a northwest wind blowing with gale force. Given these conditions and the fact that a majority of the structures in the area were made of wood, they didn't stand a chance. When the alarm sounded, the firefighters, still exhausted from the days before, responded only to find that water supplies had been severely depleted by the earlier fires. The rivers didn't cooperate either, with heavy coatings of ice. Even when they could get water, it would freeze in their hoses. One can only imagine how such conditions would sap the energy of firefighters even today. And then you remember that at the time of this fire, all water was pumped from the engines by hand. Under the direction of Chief Engineer James Gullick, the men did all they could to quell the flames. Gullick realized that the best, if not only way, to stop the spread of the fire was to create a fire break he made a decision to blow up buildings in the inferno's path to derive it of flammable material. But with strict restrictions of storing explosives in the city, he turned to the military for assistance. That came in the form of gunpowder from the Brooklyn Navy Yard, along with a contingent of Marines. The idea worked out, and coupled with the firefighters' Herculean efforts, the blaze was brought under control after about 16 hours, with some smaller pockets burning for eight more. The toll of the Great Fire of 1835 was tabulated as follows. 674 buildings destroyed in an area of 13 acres, in a city that barely reached above Canal Street. Two lives were lost, but not of any firefighters. As if the fire itself wasn't enough, there are other things that cause it to be a subject of interest to historians. First, the devastation was so impactful on the psyche of the city that many were looking to blame someone. It was determined that the source of the fire was accidentally caused when an ember from a stove ignited a leaking gas pipe. The city council turned its attention to Chief Gullick, claiming he did not do enough to extinguish the blaze. After an investigation, they decided to fire him. The firefighters were so enraged that they all resigned in disgust. 
It could be considered the first organized labor strike in the city. While the intentional destruction of buildings was controversial, it most likely contributed to stopping the rest of the city from being consumed. That concept as a means of firefighting was revisited by the FDNY 38 years later, which I'll talk about in our next segment. The New York City Fire Museum has several artifacts related to the Great Fire of 1835, including prints and lithographs, as well as an engine cover presented as a gift from Philadelphia's Franklin Engine Company 12, painted by a famed artist of the era, David Rent Etter. Be sure to visit the museum and see some of these on display in the second floor gallery. Hello everyone. I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. In a follow-up to our last segment, the technique of intentionally blowing up buildings in a place like Manhattan might seem far-fetched even in 1835, but the idea became an official part of the FDNY 38 years later. Based on a recommendation of Chief of Department Joseph Purley, the Board of Commissioners took the progressive step of authorizing a Sappers and Miners Corps on October 23, 1873. Allow me to point out that this was shortly after the citywide fires in Chicago in 1871 and in Boston in 1872, which undoubtedly played a role in this decision. Given the devastation that was witnessed in those cities, as well as New York's own experience with the rapid communication flames in densely populated areas, it was within the authority of the Board of Fire Commissioners to order that a corps of sappers and miners be organized. In response to that authorization, the commissioners decided that the lieutenant of each company, remember this is still at a time when the FDNY in New York City only covered Manhattan, would comprise the unit. Command of the Corps was placed in the hands of Assistant Chief Charles Shea. Given the lack of experience in handling and use of explosives, the department hired Julius H. Strydinger, a civil engineer, to provide training. He had most recently been involved with the extensive blasting that was done in Hellgate. Mr. Strydinger began his classes at fire headquarters, and the Corps practiced their new craft on Randall's and Ward's Islands. It's ironic that that is now the location of the FDNY Fire Academy. The next challenge was to purchase and store a quantity of explosives, initially 5,000 pounds of dynamite, that had to be easily accessible if the need arose for it to be deployed. It was decided that it would be kept on a barge and would be transported to the pier nearest the fire by the fireboat Havermeyer. Years later, it was moved to a secure vault at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Finally, a signal had to be created that would be transmitted by the chief in charge of any fire when he wanted the Corps to respond. That signal, which would sound on the bells in the firehouses, was three fives, followed by the location identified by the alarm box for the fire, and then another number designating which unit of the Corps was to respond. It was four years before the Corps was called to respond to a fire. This one had already destroyed a square city block bordered by 10th and 11th Avenues 
and West 35th to 36th Street, and was beginning to spread to the buildings on 34th Street. They responded several other times, reportedly using their skills to demolish dangerous structures left standing after the fire was out. This included a wall at a school on 9th Street and a chimney at the Eberhard Favor Pencil Factory at a site where the United Nations now sits. But the number of times there was a need to use explosives were few and far between. So much so that in 1907, Chief Croker decided he should transmit the signal for the sappers and miners to respond and see what happens. The signal 555-2671 was transmitted out using the telegraph key in the alarm box situated at the corner of Great Jones Street and the Bowery. When the alarm office received the signal, it was apparently met with skepticism since the men working there had probably never heard it before, even though they knew its significance. So it took several tries before the alarm was finally sent out, with confusion also at the companies that heard it. Finally, after the signal was sent for all units of the Corps to respond, the men began to show up. Croker was not pleased with the test that garnered such a slow and lackluster response. And although the Sappers and Miners Corps continued to exist, they were never again called out. The unit continued to exist on paper, but over the years, it was not staffed. The unit was officially disbanded by an act of the New York City Council in 1958. Once again, we are reminded of the FTNY's commitment to implement the equipment and techniques to improve their methods of combating fires. The New York City Fire Museum is proud to present the special exhibition, Firehouse, the Photography of Jill Friedman, on display through early April. The exhibition showcases award-winning photographer Jill Friedman's moving collection documenting New York City firefighters on the job in the 1970s in the South Bronx in Harlem. It features images contained in Friedman's book, Firehouse, which was published in 1977 and garnered rave reviews for displaying the honesty, grit, danger, heroism, and camaraderie of firefighters during some of the most challenging and tumultuous years. A newly released publication of the book Firehouse is also available for sale via the museum's online store at nycfiremuseum.org and is the perfect gift for FDNY buffs and photography lovers alike. Clarence Eldridge Meek was born in Missouri in 1889. He began his fire service career in Montgomery, Alabama in the early 1900s. Clarence, a ladder company tillerman, was thrown from the horse-drawn apparatus, breaking his shoulder, ending his career of being a firefighter. Throughout his professional career, he remained close to the fire service, serving as New York sales manager for Aaron's Fox Fire Engines, as Eastern sales representative for Mac Fire Apparatus, and as Vice President of Garrison Engineering Corporation, a fire control products company. In 1938, Clarence Meek suggested to Chief in Charge George McKenna of the FDNY Fire College that a library should be established there. Earlier in the department's history, a lyceum was established, but it had fallen into disuse and it was essentially mothballed. The idea was approved, and Mr. Meek was given the honorary rank of captain with appointment as librarian. He fulfilled this role on a part-time basis until his professional retirement in 1954, after which he dedicated all of his time to this labor of love, and continued to do so until his health faltered in February 1972. 
Chief Meek was a true historian of the FDNY and committed himself not only to oversight of the library, but also to documenting the history of the department. His first published article appeared in WNYF in 1949, after which he became associate editor of that journal. His reputation grew throughout the fire service beyond New York, and his expertise and knowledge were sought by many organizations and publications. He was a member of the advisory board on fire apparatus standards for the National Fire Protection Association. He was an active member of such organizations as the Firebell Club of New York and the Firemen's Cycle Club. Honorary memberships were bestowed on him by many, if not most, of the other FDNY line organizations. Advancement through the honorary ranks of the department came with promotions to battalion chief in 1953, deputy chief in 1959, and finally assistant chief in 1967. Clarence Meeks served the department as librarian and resident historian for 34 years. Just prior to his passing in 1973, the department library was named in his honor. I would like to say that Chief Meeks' writing was so prolific, it is a great resource for information when researching topics for these episodes. Without his recording of contemporary events, many facts, especially relatively obscure ones, would be lost. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What connection does the FDNY have to the Medal of Honor awarded to Private Francis Brownell for his actions during the American Civil War? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. As we close out our third year of Throwback FDNY podcasts, I would like to thank all the people and groups that make it possible, starting with the New York City Fire Museum, along with support from the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. And I especially want to thank my colleagues at the FDNY Digital and Media Unit, led by Joe Malvasio, without whom the monthly episodes would not be possible. Thank you to our producers, Nick Gus and Thomas Brown, and our script editor, Patty Murphy. I'm your host, Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important reminder. During this time of the year, traditions abound, many of which hold the potential for increasing the risk of fires. If your plans include such things as candles or indoor trees, please understand all the applicable safety practices that you should put in place. Please do not use open flame candles. Battery-powered replacements have come a long way and now look just as beautiful as the dangerous ones. If you set up a tree in your home, whether live or artificial, make absolutely sure that all electrical fixtures, like lights, have a UL-approved label and are plugged into outlets without overloading, and all the electrical cords have no frayed or bared wires. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Until next time, thank you and be safe.